Good afternoon and good evening wherever and whenever you may be and welcome to episode 107 of the Fate of Black podcast. I'm Amon Orman. I'm Hannah Flint. And I'm Clarice Lockery. This week I chat to A.V. Rockwell about the rapidly changing face of New York City and working with Tiana Taylor on her debut feature, A Thousand and One, while we rev up our chainsaws for Evil Dead Rise, boot up our laptops for missing and lay down the charge for how to blow up a pipeline. Plus, Hannah talks to the star and creator of Prime Video's Dead Ringers, Rachel Weiss and Alice Birch, all about how they drew fresh blood from David Cronenberg's 1988 psychosexual thriller. And in our hot take, we chat the finale of season three of The Mandalorian. If our earlier WhatsApp messages are anything to go by, this is going to be a spicy conversation. Uh, I'm not not sure if I'm looking forward to it. We shall see. (laughs) But before we get into all of that, how have our weeks been, Hannah Flint? We've had like, just like on like a a personal (laughs) self-growth level. (laughs) I've really come to a really interesting place of quite a lot of zen. I've been doing a lot of reading. (laughs) A lot of like self-care thing. And like, I actually really recommend, I don't know if you, if anyone's interested, but um, I just read this book yesterday called Philosophy. It's like Elizabeth Day. And it's basically, for any of our, I, I mean, I think us three, we're an anxious little posse. <laughs> we have our own mental health issues related to anxiety. I have stuff. no idea what you're talking um, about. But it was a really, it's a really cool, it's a re- it's like a really interesting way of like, what are the principles of failure and actually how failure are really good um benchmarks for learning and like uh yeah it's been like such an interesting read so I'm really switching and you know what's interesting I had a really stressful thing that you guys know about where I did an interview with someone um two-hour conversation in person and Otter this transcription app absolutely failed me and like deleted like at least like 30 minutes of it and then really like it felt like a you hear it back and it's like it's skipping and like mm. Maybe like six months ago, I would have literally not been able to sleep, pranging out over it. And this week, I'm like, oh, that happened. <laughs> I can't do anything about it. Uh, and so yeah, so so maybe not as much film related, but certainly in Hannah related week, it's been a uh, pretty eye opening and great, which is just <laughs> as important. Yeah, <laughs> we care just as much about it. <laughs> Thank you. How about you, Clarice? Uh, are you? feeling similarly zen today no (laughs) (laughs) um what did i do this week oh i went to the uh, it's called the band strikes back exhibition in south kensington which is the largest private collection of star wars um memorabilia and like fan-made things i met a guy who made this like insane model of the millennium falcon that was like accurate to the like the blaster scorch marks um it's very cool and also i saw a salacious b crumb with the most noodly arms i've ever seen and i love <laughs> them <laughs> salacious b crumb that's your favorite star wars character right wow Yes, but now I don't know. Maybe it's Dinjarin because I just relate Ooh. to him so much um, that I'm considering changing it. They're mm-hmm. tied at the moment. We'll come to a final decision in a few weeks. 
Love that, love that. Um, what have I been up to this week? Not much in a sense. I've been working on a few exciting things. Uh, there have been some exciting interviews that have taken place that I can't really talk about just yet. Um, but yeah, it's been an interesting week in certain aspects. It's only about to get better with this podcast because we've got a lot to get into. And let us start with a thousand and one. Tell me more about your foster mother. You like her? Would it make you feel better if you came and stayed with me? Yeah. All right, we're gonna go to Harlem, where I grew up at. The city had him. He's not supposed to be with me. Can't you get locked up for not that? Not if you keep it to yourself. Where's my dad at? He's gone. But you wouldn't like them anyway. I got somebody else in mind. A Thousand and One follows unapologetic and free-spirited Inez who kidnaps her six-year-old son Terry from the foster care system. Holding on to their secret and each other, mother and son set out to reclaim their sense of home, identity and stability in a rapidly changing New York City. This film stars Tiana Taylor, Will Catlett, Josiah Cross, Avon Courtney and Aaron Kingsley Adetola and is written and directed by A.B. Rockwell who I had the pleasure of speaking to not too long ago. It was a really, really fun chat. We chatted about Tiana Taylor who is absolutely incredible in this film. We chatted about casting not one, not two, not four, but three different Terrys. Um, <laughs> you see what I mean? <laughs> um, but, and, and that 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 in and of itself is is very very interesting. I love how even though there's those time jumps, all three of those actors are very emotionally in sync with that character. So none of the time jumps feel jarring at all. Um, it's so a yeah. very good film. I really enjoyed it. I highly recommend it. Me, three. me too. Yes, <laughs> it's it's a screen from all of us. Yes. Um, <laughs> and you can find out more about what went into the making of the film right now. Here's my chat with A.V. Rockwell. Welcome to the Faith of Black podcast, A.V. Rockwell. How are you? Hi, I'm great. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. All the better for having watched your film. I really, really liked it. First and foremost, congratulations on that. Uh, but before Thank we you. get into that, and believe me, we will, um, I wanted to rewind it a little bit because I know you made a couple of short films before this. What was a lesson that you learned from making those films that served you well on your first feature debut? Yeah, I mean, so I made a number of shorts. I think that I appreciate all the ways that making those shorts, I was telling stories that I wanted to tell, but it also prepared me. It just, it just, it was a, a, a place in which I could just continue to refine my craft and just, you know, find myself as a, as a storyteller. But I think it prepared me in that way. It also prepared me and just letting me know that like, as a, as you jump into features, you're doing the same thing, just longer. <laughs> you know, it just requires a lot more endurance because it's a much longer story. It's a much longer road to complete and, and see the vision through and, and just like the entire ride with it. And so I think that I really learned in the jump to just like be prepared for a level of endurance because it really is a marathon. It really is a marathon seeing a movie from idea and inception all the way into it being in theaters now. How long was that process on this one? From the idea to... You know, it's crazy. I think... Um, didn't envision it being as long as it was, but I, it, it's been about five years. Like I think between just me finally getting into the space where I could write the movie and seeing it through through production and then 
finally entering theaters. You know, we premiered at, at Sundance in January, and we, we premiered in the in the in the U.S. theaters uh, in in March on March thirty first, and and now coming and expanding worldwide, which is like really exciting. So it's 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 a ride. It's been a ride. <laughs> Excited to have this play in UK cinemas for show. We've been waiting, yeah. seeing all the US gobble all that. Give, give me the same release date, but it's fine. We're patient people, and it's coming soon. <laughs> um, I want to talk a bit about casting the Terrys uh, in this film. All three of them are great. What were you looking for? And more importantly, did you ever have them meet? Were they ever in the same room together? Yeah, uh, you know, so... The, the, the quick answer is were they ever in a room together? They did spend a little bit of time, I think the entire cast. Um, we didn't get a lot of rehearsal time going into production, but I, it was so important for me that the nuclear family spend time around each other. Um, and obviously the Terry's never filmed together specifically, but I still wanted that bond between them and I still wanted them to connect to each other um, and just kind of share that essence and that energy. And I still just go into production production with, with, that, with, that, with that like leading the way so, so they did spend time together. Um, and obviously I wanted them to spend time with Tiana, who plays Inez, Tiana Taylor, um, as well in addition to Will, like all of them, all of them being able to build connections with each other. So, um, so they did spend time with each other in addition to just focusing on the different uh, versions of Terry that they, that they capture. Um, and I think finding them, it was a challenge. I think it was a challenge just figuring out like, okay, uh, how do we cast a kid in a time where like I think casting child actors in general is always hard but also we went into production shortly after lockdown ended and, and movies were just starting to go into production again and so people there was still this skepticism and not everybody was fully open to production let alone having their kids being involved with a production and so it it, it, it made it that much more challenging to find the right kids and I, and I did try to cast a wide net um, not only working with child actors and people that were already seasoned, but also looking at non-actors, people that had never never acted before. Um, so we really casted a wide net and really took that time, really especially prioritizing finding Little Terry. Um, we knew that that was gonna take us a little bit more work. And so I was so happy when we landed on Aaron, who does a beautiful a beautiful uh, portrayal of, of Terry at his youngest age. And then preteen Terry, which is Ava and Courtney. And you feel that awkwardness <laughs> of him just coming out his shell more than when we first meet him. but still had to fully figure out who he is. And then and then uh, Josiah Cross, who plays the oldest version of Terry. And, and you feel, you still feel that continuity of who Terry is, this 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 character who is very introverted, just based on what his experiences as. But he's, he's definitely a lot more self-actualized. There's still a hole. <laughs> mm -hmm. There's still a hole in him that, you know, we address what that is um, by those final stages of the movie. But, but you see the large ways in which his experience with Inez and his experience in the film does shape who he is by that last chapter as well as, as a as a as a soon-to-be young man. Yeah, yeah. Love that. I love that. Um this film is partly about the impact parents and adult figures can have on a young person's life, how they can shape a young person's life. And this is your first feature film. You're working with young actors beyond just making sure they have a great experience. What sort of lessons and values did you and the crew that you're working with try and instill in the Ellen Kingsley, Adetola's and Avon Courtney's of this group? No, I mean, I definitely tried to create a super supportive, super encouraging, super safe environment for them, like as their as their director. Um, and that showed up in different ways, you know, whether it was just like how we got through a scene, but also just making sure that they were good, that their energy was good. 
um, and and being encouraging. I feel like uh, as a director, it is part of your job to just kind of like mentor them, especially as young actors in the ways that they need and just making sure that I'm talking to them in a way that they feel that they feel encouraged fully um, and, and fully, full, full, fully supported. And little Aaron, um, I always called him like my little professional, you know, because <laughs> Because even though he's a child um, and, and a very skillful young actor, you know, he's, a, he's you know, he knows what he's doing. Um, <laughs> but but obviously it can be taxing on 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 a kid, a little kid to be doing this type of work. And so I, I always showed my pre- appreciation by acknowledging him that, like, regardless of how challenging it is for you, I'm so I'm so proud of you for being that little professional, doing what you have to do and doing your job um, and what you came here to accomplish. So, um, so I, I really tried to be encouraging to all of them in different ways and, and be a shoulder for them and be a big sister to them if I needed be a mom if I needed to, but like, you know, all within the boundaries of me just being who I needed to be, to be the most supportive leader to them and captain to them as the director. Um, and, and I think the, the the crew did the same too. Everybody made sure they felt like loved and protected and they had their own relationships with everybody, which is also beautiful to see play out. Yeah. I love that. Um, you mentioned her earlier, Tiana Taylor, absolutely phenomenal in this film. Um, mm-hmm. I know that you've been talking about the amount of people you have to see, the process being sort of long before you found her. What was it that you were exactly looking for? And was it just like an instinctive thing immediately that you knew? Or was there a specific thing that was like, ah, she has it. That's what I was looking for. Your cast. Yeah, I think I was looking for specific things, which to me was very scary because it's like, does this person exist? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, You know, and, and I certainly think that my casting director, A.B. Kaufman, it was like, what else, like, who else do you need to see? Like, why haven't you found her yet? You know, but I, I think that Inez, I crafted a character who has so many colors and shades to her. So just as a movie character in general, I knew that she was gonna be complicated and I need somebody that could tap into all those various layers. And then add to that the fact that she is a very specific type of rendering of a New York City woman, a very specific rendering of an underprivileged woman. Um, and, And I think that all those layers, I needed to feel that. And I also wanted to feel her charisma in the ways that she is New York City personified, in a way that she is a representation of the overlooked women, you know, black women that I wanted to be see, see represented and championed through this this very complicated but humanized character. Um, I was I wanted somebody who would represent, who would feel like one and one, who would ooze this energy of like a one and one, in addition to be able to tapping and check off all those other boxes. So you know, it might have been a tall order, but I, I just mm-hmm. like stayed fortified in the pursuit, and and that's what made Tiana stand out because I felt like she connected to all of that, you know, and, and it was still scary. You know, I think when I saw her, I felt a difference. You know, she definitely stood out mm-hmm. amongst everyone, but I, I still needed to go through a process to, to make sure and feel confident that she was really Inez and that she was, she was really prepared to take on this role. It was her first leading role, you know? So I'm like, was, was she going to be pre- prepared in terms of being able to, you know, to have the skill set? Of what you know needed to to what I needed in order to capture Inez, but also the commitment. She's already a public figure. She's a musician. She's a celebrity. She has so much going on. Are you really going to be able to like to to give all of that? So I think that we had conversations. You know, we she went through all of it, and she and she and we joke about it a lot. She's like, oh, you know, I had to audition for this thirty three times. I'm like, no, you do not. <laughs> <laughs> but but we did have 
you know, she, but she did, you know, she read for the role. She met with me. We did work together before I officially gave her the role. And then we had a lot of preparation conversations. We talked a lot about Inez. We talked, we unpacked all the layers of this character. She talks about the fact that like, uh, often about the rainbow script that we created in the ways that like, I really deconstructed who this character was so that she could go off and prepare for all those different sides to Inez that she had to present, you know, with uh, over the course of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And she absolutely nails it. Um, I know you've uh, been talking a bit about how you see yourself and these characters in the story that you wrote, and I absolutely see that coming through. Are there any moments that you write that feel a long way away from yourself? And are those moments easier or more challenging to write, to bring to life? Um, yeah, I think there's there's so much of that. Like, I didn't come from the foster care system. I haven't been in jail or like, you know, just some of the things that the characters go through are not necessarily my experience. And so I really did try to, anything that I didn't know, I was like, let me research it. Let me talk to who I need to talk to. Let me read what I need to read. I, I did that in every layer, even for things that I did know. Like I did grow up in New York City, um, but I still did a wealth of research so that I could paint this picture in the right way and really understand it in a way that I couldn't have ex experienced it and understood it as a child. And so um, so I always made sure to back up what I didn't know through uh, through just a wealth of, of research um, talking with people and, and obviously even with the actors like I wrote I wrote a lot of male figures in this movie and in the ways that that wasn't my experience like I, I I talked with my men about it and how they felt like uh, about these characters and how they were rendered you know and I think that I'm grateful that I did overall you know like everyone did feel like they could feel the truthfulness in all these characters before they even got their eyes on it and so I was really grateful for that I'm not from Harlem you know, I'm from, from New York City, so I'm a, I'm a, and I'm an all city girl. But I didn't grow up on the streets of Harlem. I lived there as an adult, and so even with that, like I had to be humble and say that, like, even though there's the New York City way and the New York City experience, we still have different communities. We still have different neighborhoods and different cultures within those neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. So if I'm going to commit to telling the story in in Harlem, I had to make sure that I captured it in a way that people from Harlem felt like we see our neighborhood being honored in a way that is truthful in its depiction. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There, there's definitely things, I, I'm not from Harlem, I haven't been to Harlem, but there's definitely things from the 90s that I recognize. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that. How much fun was it going back and finding those little details and flourishes? <laughs> and is there anything, especially from the 90s that we had that you still wish we used and had today? Oh man, I mean, I think it was so much fun. I mean, I love history in general. So mm -hmm. I think just being able to tap back in these old things and remember, <laughs> mm -hmm. remember them was, it was really fun for me. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I wish there was still a use for beepers. <laughs> 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 it, was, it was, it was really fun. Like remembering that um, and bringing it back in the way that it is in the movie. Um, but obviously, you know, there's not, I do miss pay phones a little bit. I mean, it's crazy oh, really? because, you know, it, I mean, they are, they are kind of gross. I remember like some of my friend's mom would like cover cover it with like a, a tissue or something. And as a kid, I'm like, what are you doing? And then as a, now, I'm like, yeah, this is kind of icky. But I think those are like nostalgic things that like, mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, you know, I appreciate what what those were. Mm -hmm. But you know, the world changes and some parts of it need to be protected, but also some parts you just have to respect in evolution. And so, you know, I can let those go. 
<laughs> if memory serves, you have the case logic with all the CDs and stuff in this yeah. Like that brings back so many memories. All, all my older brothers used to have that and just stores. It brings back a lot of memories because that, that was fun. <laughs> you know, Josiah, Josiah in that scene, I it was so funny for me when he blew <laughs> the CD case. <laughs> Yeah. I, I gotta keep that moment because I'm like he's treating it how we like treat like vinyls and I'm like this is not an eight track sir like it's just, <laughs> yeah uh, you know uh, so it's, it's just weird but it's like yeah technically all of these things are so outdated now <laughs> yeah, yeah. so him you know being as young as he was and and recalling it um it's like yeah he he's gonna treat it like it is a piece of dust or something <laughs> yeah. a, a prehistoric piece yeah. of what he used to have. <laughs> This is what we had to do before Spotify was a thing, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, final question for you. We hear all the time in this industry about how the second film was a lot harder to get made than the first film, especially if you're a person mm -hmm. of color and a woman. But those things you are. Um, have you already started thinking about your second film? And is there anything that you learned on this journey, bringing this film to cinemas that will help you make bringing hope for that second film into cinemas a bit easier? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that um, I definitely know what I want to do next. Um, I think that there's another original idea that I'm so excited to get into that. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also have other projects that like, you know, I'm interested in adapting and just, you know, just seeing what's out there. Like, I think I'm, I'm like, in the process of developing something, but I'm also open just to seeing like, whether it is film or TV, what else is out there that might be great for me to to explore moving forward. Um, and make moving forward. Um, I think that I learned so many things going into making this movie and coming out of it alive. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I think all of that will inform how I move into my next picture. And I'm really grateful for that. I think it's, it's tough to kind of isolate it. Like what's one thing that I will take with me mm -hmm. um, going into the next one. Um, I think that, you know, maybe one of the best things I learned is I think this make making this movie really taught me how to be present. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I might have tried meditation. I might have tried, like, to understand what people meant. But I think the experience of this movie really enforced that. It's like, no, you have no choice but to be present because of all the obstacles that I, I had to endure just making a first movie and, and everything that comes with that, let alone the challenges of making any movie. And, and so I, I have so much pride when I looked at certain parts of the movie that are now my favorites, but I knew what, what the circumstances were around it. And it's like, none of that mattered. You know, I was running that none of that mattered in, in the, in, in, by, the pot, by the time that it got to the theaters. So mm -hmm. it didn't matter when I was like, I had to drown things out. You know, it's like I had to drown out anything that could have been a distraction on any level because all that mattered was what was happening in front of the camera. What, what is the moment that we need to capture and what's most critical to get? Um, and so I think I tried to zone in on that as I was making the movie and to see the success of that now, uh, when I look back at those moments and feel so grateful that I didn't let any of the various challenges that happened off screen uh, overwhelm me to that point, you know, um, mm. it's, it's, a, it's a blessing. And, and, I, and I think that that's something that I take with me into the next project just being so zoned into the moment and what truly matters most. But you can apply that to any aspect of life, you know, just mm -hmm. staying present um, and how much more focus and peace that gives you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Avi, I could talk to you about this movie all day. I still got a ton of questions, but they give me the right. Uh, Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure and congratulations you. on the film and all the success so far. 
Thank you so much. I'm so happy that everyone out there in the UK finally gets to see it. It'll be in theaters April 21st. Please go check it out. I think there's something in it for everyone. Um, but of course, I appreciate you so much. This conversation has been such a beautiful, a beautiful ride. <laughs> you know, so I mean, I hope that it, it'll be the first of many. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Looking forward to chatting to you again in person next time. Be fun. Yes, in person next time. Yeah. Come over to my yard. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It's been fun. Thank you. What's up, sis? I had the most beautiful dream. It was the perfect day. All I could think about was how much I wanted to cut you all open and then climb inside your bodies <laughs> so that we could stay one happy family. Crawl on me, sink into me, die for me, living dead girl. Rob Zombie. Which I thought was appropriate because he likes to write spooky songs. This is a spooky okay. movie. <laughs> this is good. I'm get, getting the getting the tone of what this discussion is going to be like. This is good. Um, an evil dead rise. A road weary Beth pays an overdue visit to her older sister Ellie, who's raising three kids on her own in a cramped LA apartment. The sisters' reunion is cut short by the discovery of a mysterious book deep in the bowels of Ellie's building, giving rise to flesh possessing demons and thrusting Beth into a primal battle for survival as she is faced with the most nightmarish version of motherhood imaginable. Uh, Robert Tappert produces, with Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell amongst the executive producers. This is written and directed by Lee Cronin, and it stars Lily Sullivan, Alyssa Sutherland, Morgan Davies, Gabrielle Eccles, and Nell Fisher. Uh, I did want to see this film... Uh, my hay fever that day had other Yeah, all right, ideas. chicken shit. That is what it was. <laughs> I was excited to finally, because I've heard so many things about this franchise and how amazing it is. And, you know, as we've established in recent weeks, I've become a brave little boy and nothing scares me anymore at all. Uh, so I was ready for I this. And then hay fever happened. Uh, so I'll be relying on Hannah and Clarice It's probably here. good that you didn't see it, because I think that might have broken that progress. <laughs> yeah. I think we need to do really? gradual steps with them on. Like, that one might have been a bit yeah. too much. Because it's pretty really? gnarly. Yeah. This is this is horror without the trading wheels on, for sure. <laughs> really? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's interesting. Well, before we get into that, what were your overall thoughts on the Evil Dead franchise going into this, and where does this film sit within that now for you? Clarice, I'm going to come to you first. I love the Evil Dead movies. I think they are so gory and scrappy and fun. Well, maybe not the the remake from, was it 20... Yeah, with Chilo Fernandez. The yeah, Betty Alvarez. Betty, Betty Alvarez? Alvarez. Yeah, that one was less fun, uh, but mostly they're really fun. Um, and I actually saw Army of Darkness first when I was like twelve. My I used to have Halloween sleepovers, and my parents would just tape stuff off the TV and give it to me, and I wouldn't <laughs> know what it was. <gasps> so I <laughs> watched Army of Darkness not knowing 
Yeah. I didn't know what Evil Dead was. Very confused. I would give a tip. Anyone, I'm on. Don't start with Army of Darkness. Because <laughs> you'll, <laughs> you'll be like, why does that guy have a chainsaw for an arm? What the fuck? <laughs> um, but yeah, I think especially, I also really love the first scene. Evil Dead, because I mean, it was so low budget. <laughs> the like stop motion stuff at the end is so gnarly. It's so cool. Like all the bodies like decomposing. <laughs> this just sounds like a delightful film, doesn't it? My goodness. <laughs> Dead by dawn. <laughs> I think I watched maybe the original Evil Dead in my te- teens, but by like early teens, and being a bit fucked up by it, and being quite scared about it. Now I can watch him like okay, and like um, Army of Darkness. I, I feel I can't. I feel like I have a distant, vague memory of watching it, but I do remember being at South by Southwest in 2012 for the premiere of doing the red carpet for Evil Dead, the remake, and thinking that had gone because there's a campness in a way. There's a there's a kind of humor, like a really dark mm. humor to Evil Dead, and I think mm. that one somewhat lost it. It felt like it hadn't quite captured the spirit. Yeah, it gets it by the end when everyone is just, like, covered in blood. I think it's, like, raining blood at the end. Yeah. But I would say it took longer to kind of get to the fun part with the Mm. new remake. And I think this one, from the very beginning, it's like, oh, okay. I remember going to see it, actually, (laughs) at quite a late screening of Critics, and it was just, like, just gnarly. I was just like, oh, my God. Hands in front of eyes. Yeah. I was like, okay, saddle up. Jeez, from the get-go. Yeah. Yes. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe it was a good idea. <laughs> so, yeah, as you say from the get-go, it's scary. Does it maintain that consistency of horror scares, frights all the way through? What's 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 the what's the what's the, the consistency? Of, what I would say, what's really good, what I really like about this is as a kind of. Um, First, it kind of nods its head, like it's a real kind of has an affection um, to the Evil Dead franchise and where its origins. So it starts starts with this kind of cabin in the woods situation, <coughs> and then it goes back in time, kind of work out why is it there. Um, and I think just this kind of, you know, even though it's set in LA, it's this very self-contained, like dilapidated apartment block that's just like super dark dingy it's like oh yeah this is where evil lives (laughs) Mm -hmm. and um and i think it just because it's that claustrophobic feel to it that kind of maintains all the way through now i do think like i don't know what you think Clarice, but like i do think some of the stuff was a bit like it's so foreshadowy (laughs) it's like oh that's gonna get used oh that's the then they kind of set it up check off's pair of scissors yeah 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 (laughs) and so so there's yeah. a lot of that. And also, like, you know, a lot of kind of basic, simplistic storylines that it's kind of like, oh, this is the fodder that the demons are going to use because the demons are fucking bitches. <laughs> they are awful. It's like a Ricky... Like, sometimes it's like Ricky Lake. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? That kind of, <laughs> we're going to say the awful shit to you. <laughs> and it's like, wow, okay. Um, And, you know, the kind of, like, we've never seen a we're in a horror movie but no one's ever seen a horror movie kind of sort of mentality of like uh, maybe we shouldn't open this book but let's do it anyway okay i'll play this uh, record I, I, and it does but then once you just let it go and then you just realize like oh this is actually just like the sound design the music the kind of body and i would say uh, what's her name something sutherland who plays the mom who's like the first possession the way that she uses her body it's and just like it's just freaky as fuck I loved it. 
I, I hope that both of you are smart enough to not open any mysterious books. Especially if I'm, say... in, if I'm in the vicinity when you do this, <laughs> this is grounds for unfriending. Like, just, just don't do it. I don't will defend this movie to say that they obviously this many Evil Dead movies in, they do find a clever workaround with how the curse is unleashed from the Necromicon because it's not the typical way, and yeah. they find a little trick because the kid the kid is smarter <laughs> than some of the other characters in other Evil Dead movies. I will say that. Um, well, one of the kids is. He's <laughs> like, yeah, don't know, think- don't do it. I think both kids. I mean, I don't want to go into too much detail, yeah. but compared to compared to what people have been doing in past entries, I would mm. say, and you do have to accept that you care about Evil Dead movie without somebody reading. Someone has to unleash it. Yeah. Somebody acting a fool. Um, fair, fair. I, I will grudgingly accept it. Um, this feels like a sister story. Uh, reading this synopsis, how uh, Beth and Ellie, what did you think of that dynamic? I think it's. Yeah, it's interesting. It's both kind of one of the the weakest and strongest elements of the film because there's a whole... It's trying to be a film about motherhood and it's like every fucking horror movie is a film about motherhood. <laughs> I would love to watch a horror movie that's about something else. Um, and I think when you are in such like uh, tr- overtrodden territory, this movie really does not have anything... To say that feels, um, yeah. I guess, like, revelatory or, like, generally profound. I think what's fun about the motherhood aspect is because it's about how these two different sisters, like, treat the concept of motherhood. The, the What is fun about it is that it's, it there's, like, as you're talking about the demons, Hannah, like, using uh, people's, like, greatest vulnerabilities as a weapon. Um, it's quite fun how the mom the possessed mom (laughs) is such a fucking terror (laughs) and there's a thing where it's like there's a line that i think there's a line that she says like when she's not possessed about god i wish i could just like cut myself open and like take you all and put you all inside my belly so you could be with me forever and i like the movie like it's like okay what if that was like literal (laughs) and she (laughs) literally wanted to do that what would that look like and that's evil dead rise so i enjoyed that aspect of it where would you rank this within the evil dead franchise are you are you there yet have you thought about that or do you still need time to marinate before you I haven't watched. I I think to be honest, I haven't watched a TV series. Um, I just think it's like. I just think it's a very. It does. I think what it does is, if you're gonna do bring it back, they've done it in a way that they've got all the kind of hallmarks that you want from it. You've got the kind of like the rushing POV demon angle. You've got shit ton of blood. You've got profanities. You've got chainsaws. You know what I mean? It's just (laughs) gory. And I think if you take it for that, that's that's what you'll love about it. I kind of get, like you said, Clarice, it is the kind of like the fundamental, like the heart of the story is a bit basic and not really that interesting, but you're not really going into Evil Dead to try and get some like massive kind of comment on society. You're just going there to watch. Speak for yourself, Hannah. Okay. (laughs) You're just going in there to like see some really gnarly things happen. And I mean, honestly, there's a bit with a cheese grater that I still think about and it lives (laughs) rent free in my head. (laughs) And also... The the one thing that's very different is obviously it's not in a cab. I know Army of Darkness was different, but the traditional Evil Dead movie is set in a cabin in the woods. 
and this is not. It's an apartment building, and I really like how they use the space because there's stuff with an elevator that combines my three favorite horror elevators <laughs> into one thing. Um, so props for Lee Cronin knowing his elevators. <laughs> Sometimes you guys scare me with how much you like gory, nasty stuff. Honestly, it's it's, <laughs> it's a bit weird, but it's fine. Um, so what you're saying is this film was groovy. That's the one thing I know about this franchise. <laughs> that is correct, yes. right? Yes, yes, that is the thing that Nailed Bruce it. Campbell says. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it! Uh, and on that note, it's time for our screen, stream, or skip recommendations on Evil Dead Rise. What what number of films is this in the Evil Dead franchise? Is this number five? Yeah. Nice one. And they've uh, all been Greece. good. Uh, that whole franchise slaps. Okay. So even I... I uh, so what, yeah. Sorry. So, so what you're saying is skip, right, Grace? No, I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, screen. Screen. Um, bring your friends. Um, don't bring your children. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this sounds like an 18 in the fullest sense of mm-hmm. the rating. Uh, Hannah Flint. Screen and scream and squeal <laughs> and cringe. <laughs> yeah, I was cringing listening to some of what you guys have said. This cheese grater moment does not sound like I will say the worst thing by far (laughs) was this bit where the the mom, the possessed mom is making eggs, but she's making eggs creepily. And the way she scrapes the spatula across that pan is the worst sound I've ever heard. And I just, mm, the sound design in that movie is something else. Yeah. Yeah. I might watch this when (coughs) in full view in broad daylight. I think, I think, Think, I think that would be <laughs> probably the best circumstances for me. Um, from missing limbs to missing mums, it's missing. Oh. Hi, this is Grace Allen. Please leave a message. Mom, where are you guys? My mom never came home from her trip. I don't know where she is. I'm calling about a guest you had. Um, does anyone speak English? Uh, I'm sorry. This is Elijah Park. Please, I need your help. The FBI doesn't have jurisdiction to investigate in Colombia. So is there anything I can do? I'm in the mood to fuck something up. I'm in something up. I want to go missing. I need a prescription. <laughs> I'm really tired. <laughs> it's not good. It's Beyonce. <clears throat> I really like that song. Um... When her mother disappears while on vacation in Colombia with her new boyfriend, June's search for answers is hindered by international red tape. Stuck thousands of miles away in Los Angeles, June creatively uses all the latest technology at her fingertips to try and find her before it's too late. However, as she digs ever deeper, her digital sleuthing soon raises more questions than answers. Directed by Will Merrick and Nick Johnson, the sequel to 2018's Searching stars Storm Reed, Joaquim de Amada, Ken Lung, Amy Landica, Daniel Henney, and Mia Long. Uh, so did we all see Searching back in 2018, mm-hmm. um, which I think was quite a big, it was not the first screen life un- movie, but it was a I very... Think, I think Unfriended was the first one, wasn't it? 
2014. Maybe, but I feel like... I don't know. It, it wasn't the first one, but I remember it was, like, quite a big deal at the time because it really showed the potential of this mode of storytelling. I would definitely say it was the first to do it specifically how it did it. Rather than it just being a web camera, it, the way it navigated several different things, the way the story unfolds with different browsers and different platforms through the computer screen... Whereas, you know, I think before there's been like, it's like, that's more like a Facebook web chat. And then since yeah. then, there's obviously well, I think been there was a short, like... There was a short film as well that I believe did it. Mm. And then we've before had like, this. what's it called? Host and things like that mm. since then. Yeah. yeah. So what I think what is, it's interesting now to return to the concept, now that it's been explored in different genres by different filmmakers, does missing evolve the sort of storytelling that we already saw in Searching or is it very much just more of the same Amon? I do think it evolves it to a degree. Um, I liked I think one of the best things about it is how they keep it fresh with how they innovate that type of storytelling. What camera views are you doing? How are you furthering the mystery by doing it from a certain view. All of that stuff is really, really good about this film. It kept me, you know, and granted, I'm not the best when it comes to guessing ahead and trying to figure things out, especially in a movie like this, but it kept me fully in it. Um, and I was sort of surprised by the many twists and turns that the film uh, gave us as, as it progressed. I don't know if it, I would say it progressed too much. I like the fact that it kept it within the world of the previous film so this happens in the same universe and that was clever the opening sequence of it um i think what i found interesting was just how surveilled we are <laughs> so world, mm. and how this film kind of shows how um good that can be but also really quite nefarious insidious um, mm -hmm. you know, like things about how people can hack in and see what you're doing. I don't know. I think it was quite interesting. I, I think also the fact that you've changed it, swapped it around to where you have like a dad looking for his daughter and you now have a kid looking for uh, his, her mother. You do get like a whole different element because there's obviously certain things that a kid will be using online and the ease, the ease with which they do it as well. I don't know. It's one of those things where you're like, She's very resourceful, but also there's like, okay, how's she doing this more? How's she getting past this more than the actual FBI? <laughs> but I suppose that was kind of part of the point. Because also it's like, I definitely think there's a sense of like resources and what people have got time to put into it. So it's no wonder she's had to do a lot of themselves. Yeah. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Also, the FBI are like incompetent and corrupted. So. <laughs> oh, I would add actually, sorry, one of the other things I would say involved, it got into how actually um, media can actually change public opinion and like the court of public opinion. Because certainly as it goes on, you suddenly find that this person, this person is one for missing and then suddenly you kind of opens up to the idea, oh, well, what if that missing person... It's like the kind of, what's it called? That thingy duck? Milkshake duck. You know, everyone mm. loves milkshake duck. And it's like, oh, wait, it's that milkshake duck is a pedophile. And it's like that sort of thing. It's like, you know, how online culture works where suddenly everyone's in TikToks and theories and all these type of things. And I thought that was an interesting element to add to this story especially when it comes to a black woman well further to that i'm not sure if you guys thought this but this film watching certain elements of it especially when they go 
that there were a couple of instances where they do like the Netflix true crime sort of series documentary. Did this make you think about that film we discussed a few weeks ago, which was a documentary about documentaries? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Subject. Because yeah, that was it. Um, and where the original victim is left after all of this media stuff, that was very, very interesting with that film. And it made me, watching this film made me think of that again. Um, it was very well observed. Yeah, the TikTok stuff <laughs> was very, uh, like, I think who, whoever decided to put that idea in has really been paying attention because the true crime stuff on TikTok is evil. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess the original plot, of, so I'm trying to remember what happened, but I remember it being quite clever. <laughs> mm. And obviously this film relies on a lot of different twists and turns and revelations and people who think of this are actually one way. Um, mm -hmm. How effective did you think the actual plotting of it was? Because I really enjoyed it. I have a little, I have some caveats about it. Um, but Amon, what did you think? I thought it was incredibly clever. <laughs> I was so into this. <laughs> uh, I wish I would have watched this like, with, with like an audience in the big screen because I'm sure if they're anything like me, they'll be like, what? And gasp and like, how, what is happening right now? <laughs> I was just watching it and I was like, whoa, I did not see that coming at all. I thought it was really, really effectively done. But again, as I say that, the people who are much better than me watching these films like, oh, he's the killer. Oh, that's happening. And I'm, I'm not that guy. So, <laughs> but I, for, for my part, I, I was fully into it. I thought, I thought it was really, really good. It's so funny to me really because you are literally terms. obsessed with fan theories. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I'm going to, I'm going to stop now because you said you don't like watching them. But <laughs> I know because the thing is, it's like, I like to experience them in the moment and don't like to have my anything clouded. Do you know what I mean? Like I kind of mm. want to come to my own. Cause I do like, cause I, me and Clarice watched this film together and I was kind of like, quite excited it's like oh i think that's gonna happen next but i like it because i'm watching it in the moment and it's like a live thing yeah. rather than it'd be like me going into missing and then say this is what's gonna happen here and it's like oh that doesn't if i've got all these ideas in it before i've even gone into it yeah. that's just gonna be like confirmation bias i don't know it's just like it it doesn't feel like i'm enjoying it as much as if i was just like well, making you... the, making the opinion as i'm in it like in in real time were you ever right on some of the things you thought might happen? In this? I th Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although I think it's interesting. When me and Clarice left, we had this, like, there was something about the opening thing about a certain medical situation that afterwards I was like, I thought that wasn't as clear as I thought because they yeah. set up a thing, like a red herring, yeah, I which I exactly think, what you yeah, mean. and I was like, afterwards I was like, wait, I don't get that. But then, and again, this is the point, it's kind of like, I don't know, it'd be kind of cool to understand it. I don't want to give it away because obviously that's a key kind of like plot twist. But um, um, what were your things then? What were your caveats? Oh, well, I don't want to, I don't want to specify what it is, but I think obviously it's quite a, like a sh intentionally schlocky thriller, like it's crazy shit happens. And I think when, when it goes towards the end, it starts to tread into quite serious territory, like quite serious issue. Um... And they, I'm not saying it was mishandled or badly handled, but I think using that purely for, like, the adrenaline aspect of it and, like, the thrill of it, I was a little bit like, ooh, oh, I don't know. I don't don't quite know about this. But it's not it's not a massive negative. I just, I was just, 
I felt like a little bit tense during that because I was like, oh, I don't know about where this is going or what they're going to do with this because um, you got to be really careful. And it definitely had that kind of like 90s, noughties thriller element of it. You know what I mean? I don't want to say the film, but there's yeah. a few films in it that really like reminded me of. It's, it's like in a film that I swear Ashley Judd would have been in <laughs> 20 years ago, right? Like yeah. it's definitely like that for me. But I am. Um, I think Storm Reed was very good. Um, I really liked the uh, Colombian that character. What was his? What was the character's name? Was it is that played by? I want to say it was Javier. Javi, Javi. Yeah, I think it was Javi. Uh, by Joaquin de Almeida. Um, I thought he was great, and I kind of like loved that little interaction because, again, what's that kind of like generational thing of she's so such a whiz on computers and this guy's like okay I'm doing a WhatsApp yeah yeah and it was just oh, like yeah. those things and that added to like the because also there's what I think is really good and I think when we talk about how to build a pipeline as well it's like it I feel like it really hits on that sense of uncertainty like and that stress like the stress inducing because there's like you're in your head you're like creating these stories in your head of like what's going to happen next so that kind of fight or flight really like hits that part of your brain where you're like oh my god like what's going to happen this is like those type of things that you're kind of like oh my god this is feels um like i need to expunge this like adrenaline it builds the adrenaline that way because you just don't know what's kind of going on and you're trying to get answers but then they kind of there's so many like dead ends or things that kind of go either way so yeah i think it really knew how to play on the anxiously uh 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 what was what i say anxiously le- anxiously leaning individuals in the audience <laughs> i like that she had to download whatsapp <laughs> to talk to harvey so it's like of course harvey would have whatsapp and like this teenage girl would be like what is that <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think the other sort of Thing we could mm. put a spotlight within all of this the editing is really really well done it's really really sharp it's really really energetic everything as she's searching as she's downloading whatsapp the, the speed at which she does that or, or which it's shown when she sort of puts new passwords in by the way her desktop is in complete and utter mess i don't know how she keeps anything straight but again the editing within that I thought it was very, very impressive. And it needs to be in a film like this where there's so much information that is being given to you at so many points. I thought it was really You know the WhatsApp thing, though? How did you think that was the... Did you think it was a generational thing? Like a... I think it's both generational and also WhatsApp is very popular in South America. But I also saw it as... I also saw it as um, a wealth thing because she obviously uses FaceTime, which is an iPhone. And, like, not everyone can afford... Like, I can't use FaceTime because I have an Android. And, obviously, those phones are cheaper. So, I saw it as... Maybe. But also, teenagers just don't use WhatsApp. Really? (laughs) Sorry to announce it to everybody. (laughs) That is, like, such a revelation. What do they use? (laughs) Um, um, I don't know. Like, TikTok or maybe Discord. It depends what... I don't know. It depends what they're doing. Wow. I just... Um, I've aged 10 years. (laughs) <laughs> i'm sorry to say this did everyone notice the easter egg that continued on from the originals from searching i didn't but you told me about no. it 
because in searching there is a background story about an alien invasion and if you keep your eye out on some of the links when she's looking at news stories you will see that it is continued Ooh. okay <laughs> this is me because i'm too detail orientated so i was not paying attention to what was happening but i was like <laughs> where are the other links on the stories that she's looking at uh well unless anyone has anything else that they want to add um i want to i want to ask something how messy are your desktops well i just have like my screenshots no question to ask a woman (laughs) (laughs) i'm reading so much into that answer hannah (laughs) i can't really see it because i have so many windows open so i don't really look at it very often oh yeah there's quite a lot on here but it's all screenshots (laughs) <laughs> I have a funny I have a good idea of what those screenshots are uh, knowing you <laughs> uh, wait being, what do you think they a, are being on a message chain with Clarice Lockley is an experience people let me just tell you that Get so a lot of Pedro Pascal imagery oh. no it's not of him <laughs> it's of really? like really I'm shocked it, no I, I screenshot emails where it's a piece of information I need to remember so I can get it oh. easier it's sorry, it's okay. no fun things. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, missing screen stream or screen painter. I'm on. Screen. Yeah, I'll say screen. Yes. <laughs> We're doing good today. <laughs> um, from. Wait. Well, the kids don't use WhatsApp, but according to this next movie, they are still on Twitter. So, (laughs) (laughs) thank you to the movies for helping us old people keep up. (laughs) This is How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Hey everyone, welcome back to Boom Talk. Today, teaching myself to make a homemade blasting cap. If this works, it'll be step one making our own improvised explosive. Might be headed to Texas for the winter. What's in Texas? This project. What kind of project? Boom, shake, shake, shake the room. Boom, shake, shake, shake the room. Boom, shake, shake, shake the room. Tip, 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 boom. Very exciting. Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince classic. The How to Blow Up a Pipeline follows a crew of young activists who are planning a mission to sabotage an oil pipeline. With their daredevil plan in motion, each character's motivations are revealed by flashbacks as the film barrels towards its explosive climax. Um, so this is directed by Daniel Goldhaber and based on a non-fiction book of the same name by Marxist academic Andreas Malm. It stars Ariella Barrer, Christine Froseff, Lucas Gage, Forrest Goodluck, Sasha Lane, Jamie Lawson, Marcus Scribner, Jake Weary, and Irene Bedard. So, um, as I suppose I was thinking about like eco-terrorist movies that I've been about. Um, mm. Night yeah, moves. there's also what was that one with um, Ellen Page? Uh, sorry, Elliot Page. The East. The East. Yeah, and also what this came to mind for me was also First Reformed. Uh, uh, but I suppose mm. there's a question of like, when you finished watching this film, were you like, 
maybe we should blow up some pipelines. Clarice. Why? Well, I, th- I <laughs> But it's like double but... down. You're like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say it's, I think it's cool and interesting to see a movie. Um, what I actually felt very radical about this film is that there's no like self-satisfaction about it there's no like you audience what are you doing it's very much like these this younger generation like people who are just turning like 18 into adulthood now um have such a right to be furious and have such a right to be angry because their futures have been fucking destroyed and like what choice do they have just to keep living and and like it the film you know shows how each of them are affected by the climate crisis and then kind of goes well if that happened to you why wouldn't you do the same um so i think like i i sort of like that it's almost not like a call to action <laughs> i know a lot it's been advertised as that but i'm like i don't think it really is i think it just is like the these people there are people like this and they would have the motivation to do this so yeah suck it and and <laughs> yeah and i think <laughs> you know well amon what was your position what i mean did you have really strong environmental positions beforehand did, did this film change your opinions in any way because i do think it's in, it's probably one of my sympathetic uh films that call for direct violent action yeah no nah, i thought this was really really good i was pretty much already on its side going into this as well i just think this film did a really good job of really explaining you know justifying its position like they say at multiple points that spreading awareness is no longer enough that these are the reasons that they need to take drastic action especially with the characters in this film there's a couple who they've all been directly affected to varying degrees there's a couple who or there's at least one person who's got a terminal diagnosis i think um so again through characters like that and then through the general wider worldview you absolutely get why they've decided to take this action i thought that was really well handled and explained all the way throughout the film those flashbacks you mentioned uh do a really good job of giving you just enough information on each character um that you care about what happens to them and what they're trying to accomplish yeah and i think i mean i think what the strength of this is the characters um, who feel real. I mean, normally when you think about like environmental activists, you just think of white middle-class people like who can afford to kind of, you know, chain them, take the day off and chain themselves to things. You know what I mean? Like, and it's also, that's part of the media projection of it, but often it is kind of that sort of representation. But in this, you have people who are indigenous, who are people of color, who are working class. The marginalized people are probably most affected by it. And I really love the idea. I love the way that the film, um, doesn't like you said Clarice it's not them like wagging their finger on the pedestal they actually don't know if they're what they're doing is right they don't know if it's going to work they had there's a really good scene where they kind of discuss are we going to be are we terrorists are we are we going to remember as heroes well actually if we stop this oil thing that means it's going to hurt people who need to get to jobs and it's like well it's collateral damage and it kind of in a way it's like really grapples with the uncertainty of this situation as I was saying earlier like the uncertainty of this but it's kind of like sometimes you have to allow for that accept the uncertainty 
you have to be uncomfortable in order to make change. Like no progressive action has ever been achieved by just kind of like sitting back, you know. And and I think what's interesting is the original book that it's based on charts that it looks at revolutionary action and how actually we kind of get this impression that oh yeah the suffrage movement it was non-violent on civil rights it's like no there was violence literally there was so much violence that's like, going on like some suffragettes blew things up like ran in front of a track yeah. like there's so many ways yeah exactly yeah, it's it like that's cool. not that sometimes but i like the way this is kind of saying hey look we're just kids and also and i love to get into the element of tension in this that uncertainty anxious feel about these aren't weapons experts <laughs> So, Clarice, can you talk to me a bit about how you felt like those kind of things were that actually we see the pro process of them building this bomb and kind of, again, so many questions hanging in the air. Is it going to be successful? I think what this film does very successfully is that it takes, like, I guess what is quite radical thinking and action and it presents us, like, it's quite a like a Hollywood movie in, in its structure in the way they're like putting this plan together because they have the meetings where it's like, first, we're going to do this. And next is a very Ocean's Yeah, Island. I've seen that and described seen as the couple. Ocean's kind of a heist sort of situation, right? Yeah. And there's a couple of reviews. I, I saw some reviews and I agree with this. Like compare it to, um, well, there's like Wages of Fear, but then the, the William Freakin Sorcerer about where they're driving the mm. truck over the bridge. Like that sort of like this thing could blow up at any moment, <laughs> and so there's lots of scene of them like carrying the bomb, and it's yeah. like don't fucking drop it, don't fucking drop it, don't fucking drop it, and like it's quite a simple way to create tension. It's quite a Hollywood way of creating tension, but you have to like have a really good understanding of pacing and camera work and editing to really make those scenes work, and this does a hundred percent. Like it, it feels the same as it is to watch like in speed yeah, on a bus. yeah. <laughs> like the bus can't slow down you know it's it's very it's really entertaining it is a it's an entertaining movie Amon were you I mean I remember watching this like because I think I watch it out of Sundance and just been like first I was watching it was like I'm holding my breath <laughs> I didn't really like sometimes you don't realize mm-hmm. how your body clenches up it was very stressful watching it, but like in a very like enjoyable way. Like, oh, I love it. I feel so- this is making me feel something, and also it's making me like root for these these kids, these people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hundred percent. Very very tense. They do the thing a couple of times where they cut to a flashback just at the apex of a really tense scene as well. So that would be like, oh. And then it'll be diffused immediately. And then you'll go back to like a few mm, minutes later. Mm. I thought that was quite clever too. Um, but yeah, it was really, really smart and very, very tense. The, the Ocean's Eleven comparisons mm. are very... Okay, was anything else anyone wanted to add about how to blow up a pipeline? I guess... I, because I was thinking about this, about the backstories of like, they're all kind of affected by a different thing and i can sort of see the argument of like that's a little bit convenient right that all these characters have like a different reason (laughs) and it's all something that where they've been directly impacted but then Mm -hmm. i was thinking well that's that's the climate crisis though isn't it because we're going to get to a point where nobody's going to have not have been affected so i Mm -hmm. actually think like that side of it's really clever but saying that though luke there's a character lucas gage and i like the fact that he's technically like 
I think just threw in like the white middle class oh, yeah. cis rich kid. And the I thought that kid. was interesting. You know, the fuck, Cross you know, Lonnie gets, and he's like, he's just got daddy issues or something. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, I think it was very good at like showing the, a kind of presenting the, the how widespread this crisis is in the different ways that it touches people. I've got asthma. Asthma was not a thing until the Industrial Revolution. That was invented. That's what happened. So we have mm. so much diseases because of like non-renewable, uh, non-renewable resources. It's kind of wild when you watch something like this and you're like, you know, I remember being at school and teaching us about like renewable, sustainable energy and solar power. And you're like, that was what, 20 years ago? And still, that's not the norm. Like, and again, just goes into the capitalist superstructures and all that type of stuff. It's like, yeah, and it does get frustrating and angry. And I'm like, Ugh. and I really like the scene um, where Ariella Barra's character she's at she's at college and she's with an activist group. And it is this sort of like this white guy who kind of come, like he comes off kind of privileged, being like, well, yeah, we should just like you know we're gonna lobby the college to divest from fossil fuels and like it's gonna be a really exciting chance to make change. And she's like, is it is it it really gonna change something? And I think that single scene expressed a lot about what Andrew's mom's book was about, just like in one kind of relatable, realistic, grounded moment between activists. So I think, I don't know, the writing was so good. But the thing is, what the thing is, you look at it and you're like, you're kind of like, yeah, do it. And it's like, will you risk jail to it? And you're like, ugh. And, and that's the thing in real life. It's like, yeah, you know, again, it grapples with this kind of idea. Like, what is the risk? Are you willing to put your literal life on the line for this? And I suppose that's the problem as well. It's kind of like, we are caught in this like ethical, moral kind of life bind of do we, are we ready to do the do the risk? And I think for most of us, we support it, but we're probably not willing to break the law for it, right? You know, we'll be like, well, cheerleading. Yeah, although yeah. lots of people don't. I was like it. looking at this thing for this one organization, <laughs> and I was like, because I was like, oh, how can I be more active? And it was, I won't say what the organization was said on the website. It's like, are you willing to get arrested for this cause? And I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like I just feel like I admit that I can't I was like I, I'm I'm a coward in that sense like I'll do it but like I will donate to your legal campaigns to get people out you know so there we go anyway okay so how to but I was at the movie the movie tackles with that as well like I won't talk but near the end there's sort of a, a part of the story is about who has like what yeah who has the 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 ability to sacrifice and who doesn't um which is yeah something i think about because like i can't really have a criminal record because i would probably be deported quite quickly so (laughs) it's something i think about a lot in terms of activism um but yeah that's the thing it's like it's really good at dealing with the consequences and the reality of it and what it means for people for individual people so in case the feds are listening in (laughs) we do not on record support <laughs> will be taking part in any violent direct action uh our endorsement of the film is not an admission of guilt <laughs> authorities listening in she's she's winking right now she's winking just so you know. <laughs> okay so uh so it's out in cinemas uh now so screen stream or skip for mom screen screen
And it is a screen from me. This is a okay. really good week. Have we ever had a week like this where like every movie has been triple screen? This has been an interesting week because I should also probably shout out the films that we haven't been able to review. Like Sick of Myself, that was really good. Uh, awesome. Well, Love that film. Yeah, was this? Oh, Three Musketeers, D'Artagnan. That is insanely good. I loved it. Anything else anyone wants to shout out before we get into the final end? Well, well, the I, other I, movie I watched was a good, so I'll keep it to myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ghosted. I have not uh, finished uh, yeah. watching it. Yeah, I might, I might like watch that later <laughs> when I'm trying to get to sleep. <laughs> okay, so from uh, one, one adaptation... Uh, to another. This is Dead Ringers. It's impossible to explain this relationship to anyone outside of it. We just cut a baby out of a woman's womb. She asked us to. We didn't just, like, do it. She's the funny one. (laughs) My sister and I do work that is groundbreaking, but hopeful, radical, but safe. Sometimes I feel I've got to I want to change the way that women birth is world-changing. How does that vomit-inducing idealism translate into dollars? I do my job to help people. Baby sister, you are so deliciously perfect. Where do you come from? Is capitalism very bad? When to become one She needs some love like I never needed love before Wanna be a twin with you forever, baby Had a little love now I'm back for more, yeah, we're too codependent. Set your spirit free. It's the only way to be. Yes. You didn't say enough fucks for it to be realistic to the Dead Ringer series. True. I, I didn't. <laughs> she says I the actually. Oh, fuck. Fuckity fuck, fuck, fuck. Fuck. I love the way that Rachel Vice says it. Oh, yeah. Just like this fun little moment for Rachel Weisz. Okay. <laughs> a modern take on David Cronenberg's 1988 thriller, Dead Ringens features Rachel Weisz playing the double lead role of Elliot and Beverly Mantle, twins who share everything, drugs, lovers, and an unapologetic desire to do whatever it takes, including pushing the boundaries on medical ethics in an effort to challenge antiquated practices and bring women's healthcare to the forefront. Created, written, and executive produced by writer and playwright Alice Birch, Dead Ringers also stars Brittany Oldford, Poppy Lou, Michael Chernus, Jennifer Ellie, and Emily Mead. Plus, I'm going to give a shout out to my dear friend, Rachel Delahaye, who was a supervising producer, and she wrote one of the episodes. Um, and so, I, I, it could be seen as biased, but also, I think objectively, we can agree Dead Ringers is fucking sick. It's just so goddamn good. Uh, Clarice, you are not friends with my friend Rachel. <laughs> I I really I really enjoyed it. I think it's very I wrote a piece on Flex UK about this about like why about literal versus metaphorical because I don't think it's saying anything that was not already in Cronenberg's original film. And so, like, a part of me was watching this movie, watching the series going, oh, do they think they're improving it? Because they're not. It's already in the movie. But there is also worth, I think, in A, like, having women talking about writing about these experiences. Because it's all about fertility and birthing and the healthcare system. Um, 
And so there's a lot of worth in that. I think there's also can be a lot of worth in like saying things more literally. <laughs> so it's interesting. Like I I really enjoyed it. Um but it made me think a lot about like how do we communicate ideas and what's the worthiest way to communicate an idea because it is very like this is the theme of the show. I am saying it now. But you know what? I would I would argue that w- watching Dead Ringers back, it is such it is so much from and I'm not saying it's a misogynist film, but it's such a misogynistic perspective it's basically showing when it comes to mm. women, the female body, the fact that you have and it makes um and the what I wrote a piece about and I and I thought it was really interesting there's in biological terms, adaptation is the process of change by which an organism or species becomes better suited to its environment. And I feel like this version of Dead Ringers, it's been adapted and changed to be better suited to the environment we are in today, which is let's have women talk about their own experience, female experiences. There's a connection between the Mantle sisters that the Mantle brothers will never have by the fact that they cannot experience that female experience. And I think the way it expands and opens up to take into, I mean, look, there's no people, there's literally, it's a totally white movie, Dead Ringers, isn't it? And this mm. one grapples with, you know, the systemic mistreatment and patriarchal when it comes to black health, going back to history of gynecology. I thought it was just, again, it's like, this is what adaptation is. Like, Dead Ringers, the film exists, but this is so much different, well, as you said, by having a room full of women writers and having it so focused on female perspectives um of the mother motherhood womanhood and a reproductive experience that it feels like this isn't about trying to say anything it's going to say it's trying to say like this is what happens when you take that subject matter and you have a different perspective on it and do it through different eyes and a different lens yeah but i don't don't think it's necessarily has all that much a different perspective because the film is yeah it's expressing it from like the patriarchal viewpoint um but i think it's like the t- the thing that gets me about Dead Ring is the movie is when he gets those tools, he makes those tools, um, and it says so much. I think it says, just in that single image, it says everything that the show is trying to say about how, like, women are viewed by the healthcare system. Yeah, but in, like, this but Dead Ringers tool. never tries to humanise the women in it. That's the problem, I think. It's all about dehumanising women. Because they're not, because no, but that's, that's my how point. the healthcare system views No, them. but yeah. that's my point, is that Dead Ring is the film is about the dehumanizing of women. Whereas Dead Ring as a series is saying, yes, women are dehumanized, but we're trying to humanize them as well. And that's what I think that Dead Ring is misses. For me, it's so much about a male perspective that actually it doesn't even try to offer any kind of redeeming female qualities, really. Even some of the characters like are quite vapid uh, in the film. Anyway, you know, that, I mean, that's a whole, it's an interesting thing, but I'm saying that exists in that way, but that's a film mm. made by men. You can tell, made by men, and this one feels like, oh, this is what happens when you have women in charge of the story. It's not saying it's, they're obviously still points, but I think some of the points are made far better and more bitingly relatable. And there's more space to yeah. explore it because of six episodes rather than a two-hour film, right? I think I think some of the points are not as well made, I would argue. But it's fine. We... <laughs> well, there you go. This is why we have this podcast to debate. Anyway, um, and you know what? Rachel Weisz is a massive fan and Alice Birch are both massive fans of the original. They love it as well. And so mm. here's, here's, what, uh, here's me having a little chat with them. Uh, enjoy. Hi. Hello. I should preface this by saying that Rachel Delahaye 
is a very dear friend of mine. <laughs> and I've been texting her. Uh, I had lunch with her last week. I was texting her at Portuguese New York. I was like, this show, man, this show is insane. I love it. So uh, big fan and also big supporter of the Rachels on this show. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I suppose my first thing, I rewatched um, Dead Ringers last night. Uh, 1988 of course um I, it I I didn't I forgot how quite misogynistic <laughs> a lot of it is I mean the math the math thematically I suppose um did you guys did you re-watch it you watch it back in the day and then obviously we watch it was there anything that struck you from your first impressions of that film and where, it, where what you see it now through this perspective and this kind of world we're in um change your opinion of it I love I, I I've loved it since it first came out and seen it a few times um in the ensuing sort of time um yeah I mean the idea just came like well what what if they were two female doctors and then when Alice became interested we then Im immediately decided that they should be obstetricians as well so I think as soon as you make them into women who are delivering babies they're not just not 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 just it's a big deal being a fertility doctor but they're they're delivering babies it kind of changed the yeah um changed the characters and changed the their outlooks and i think beverly we always knew that she would be very empathic mm -hmm. to her patients and a really really good really good doctor the kind of doctor one would want if you were delivering a baby so those were Mm. kind of our, our original ideas but I I mean I I love I think the film's completely iconic completely brilliant and I love it no I love it I just I suppose um it's more the idea that um obviously in 88 and what's what it's trying to say about misogyny men kind of like see objectifying women the kind of concept about the maternal and like when you have two men in control of the body and kind of seeing women as both objects of sexual gratification but also personal gra professional gratification when I watched this series and just seeing just how this feels far more of a reclamation, uh, reclamation for women, that's what I just just astounded by just how different they are. And I suppose that's what I kind of want to get over, like Alice, like kind of it's 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 not it's like a monolithic view of what womanhood or motherhood should be. And I'm really just like interested about where those kind of first like foundate the foundational ideas of those came from to expand it in such a way. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Um. I mean, it, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of so, so hard to know, because as, as you just really beautifully described, it's, it, hopefully it's kind of many things and it's like m multiple experiences for multiple people. And, and that was a lot of what the writer's room, including the brilliant, brilliant Rachel Serhay, um, you know, that we spent a lot of time talking about that and talking about the, I mean, the, the film is so, um, so many also so many things at once it's sort of not it's as, as and I think we feel like I watched it and sort of was trying to figure out what to pull from it and then I didn't really look at it for a long time while we were building our characters and our show and sort of figuring out where we wanted them to go and so it wasn't a kind of um conscious move away from it or move towards it, it was sort of more like okay well these are the things it's this relationship, it's this central relationship, it's this like delicious, weird, singular tone, it's um, it's this insane ride. Um and then and then it's also what else is it? Because we're gonna we're gonna make a new a new thing. 
I was looking at the definition of adaptation today and I found it really interesting that in the biological sense it's the um, adapting something that's better suited to the environment that it's in now and of course we're in here we are and I feel like it's a perfect <laughs> description of the show because it feels you know when you, you know, the idea that you're kind of taking something but also just making it fit the surroundings environment shaping it so when you were writing this I, I believe you started was it around lockdown or quite a few years and obviously there's a lot of stuff going on in the world real world politics reproductive rights I suppose how much did that kind of what was going on the environment we're in now was influenced in as you were writing it yeah I love that definition of adaptation I wish I I adapt stuff all the bloody time I <laughs> um it's um Yes. I mean, this has been a really, really, really long conversation. Like we started talking about it like almost four years ago, I think, or no, even longer. 2017. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, almost five years ago. And, um, and then, you know, I suppose, I suppose we were talking probably, I don't know, about eight months or something. And then I wrote the script, the pilot and the Bible. And then, um, yeah, and then we we went to Amazon during the first lockdown, and then the Zoom, the writers' room, which was all over Zoom, happened over I don't know lockdown two or three, whichever one it was, <laughs> and then we shot very much you know during during the pandemic as well. So I suppose um, yes, I think I think something is always a product of the environment in which it's made, and you sort of break like even if you don't mean to, you bring a lot of whatever that day was and whatever the feeling was into it but um but I think because this has had such a long gestation <laughs> uh it's it, it it always felt to me like we were having a really complicated conversation all the all the time if that makes sense yeah um Rachel it's hard enough shaking off one character um having to kind of exist with two um, how was that kind of I, I'd love to know a little bit about your um the process of inhabiting Beverly versus Elliot were there kind of techniques that you did were there things that you thought about because I feel like acting is such a weird thing to talk about because it's such a intrinsic <laughs> introspective thing and now I'm asking you to tell me exactly what you did um <laughs> but I suppose what were the things that you kind of uh, was there any kind of little rituals or things that you did to try and differentiate but also let go as well at the end of shooting yeah, you're, it's a really hard thing to talk about because the the process of um, uh, like finding the characters is very private. I I was Alice and I were talking for many months, and and then I said, and then Sean Durkin came on as executive producer, and I said to Alice and Sean, I'm I'm going to go and learn my lines now. I've got another mm -hmm. job to go and do, uh, and so yeah, I just shut the door of my office and uh, had these two incredibly um layered psychologically complicated women on the page that weren't just it, people that Alice and I were talking about Alice had written you know just had written their dialogue you know which, and it, it was extraordinary writing so I had this time of learning the lines and finding the characters and they just was are, are so radically different to each other um which I I knew they were and then the writing gave me these two different people so I just had them it would it's just like playing one character but there's two <laughs> so it's just mm -hmm. two of them um and uh yeah I could just 
move from one to the other and it was technically challenging at first and then we got better and better at it um as a as a crew as a whole production unit um and the other actors so i would play to if it's a dinner party scene but it would be elliot with 10 other people and and then elliot with those 10 other people so it was it was a big group effort um and um no i didn't really have a trick uh not <laughs> thing, just just really brilliant complicated writing that that was had fed my imagination and they were just had, they had so many dimensions. I mean, that's what you want as a, as an actor is to have, have a real, like a really complicated character. I think you did have a trick. You had a bobble. <laughs> yeah, that's what you had. A bobble. A hair tie. Oh yes, yes, hair up, hair down. Oh God. There you go. There you could have stopped me. That was the most <laughs> long-winded actress answer. And I could have just oh. said a hair tie. Do you call them with their bobbles now, are they? Well, I used to. I'm from the. I'm from like Doncaster itself. Yeah, don't worry. Bubbles I just up been, yeah, no, no, no. I love bubble. Yeah, <laughs> just, just a hair bubble. Yeah. Um. Um. One of my. I think Karakusama. Oh, it, no, <laughs> it was no. It's beautiful because I do think you're right. It is. It's and also I think I read, watched an interview with like Joaquin Phoenix and he's like I can't even talk about what I did. <laughs> that was that. That happened. I disassociate whatever happened there. And Karen Kusama is, uh, I just love her so much. I've loved her since like Girl Fight. And yeah. how is that? How is she? And especially because she's, you know, she's gemless of his body and like this again, getting into like women and all those kind of themes. Um, how is it shooting with her and also Alice, like working with her, kind of interpreting kind of the writing that you guys as a team did, but onto the, onto the screen? Oh, she is just brilliant. I mean, she is badass. Yeah. She's like... She because TV you've got to you move really fast, yeah. and she moves even faster. Yeah, she just keeps on moving, and her level of concentration and her eye for detail, and her, you know, her, her she's very warm, very empathic, very kind, listens to everybody. But yeah. she just she draw as a director, she just drives like yeah. like a it's like a bullet train, it's which incredible. is what you need. She's her energy is incredible, it's and, and her episode is just. Yeah, it's a real gem. Yeah, sorry, Alex. That... <laughs> no, I did. I text Rachel. I t- did text Rachel. I was like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> this episode is like in just insane. Um, <laughs> no, I mean everything that Rachel just said. Just she's extraordinary. It was. It was. I mean, it, she's incredibly inspiring. It's sort of like you know, it's it's, but just yeah, very pragmatic very sort of like in there knows exactly has the plan knows what she's doing very clear but very responsive a brilliant collaborator like up for notes and really clear and just knows how to kind of just knows how to to do it I mean she just and that episode was was kind of wild and um and she she was brilliant the whole way through from you know script early days early conversation casting she had a really clear vision she worked beautifully with the DP I mean, yeah, she was wonderful. We yeah. were really, really, really lucky with all the directors across the whole series. Um, I definitely Googled <laughs> gynecology origins after watching that episode. I was like, who is this guy? And it was like wild. And I suppose, I mean, that's the beauty of a show like this is that it, it get, makes people curious. I suppose what was the things that uh, surprised you or kind of caught you off guard when you were prepping for this and learning about not just kind of gynecological history or... Um, fertility but also like twins the the twin dynamic especially identical twins and that's kind of synchronicity and 
I don't know it's just it's such a niche situation but just so much um I feel like there's such, such a misconception about certain things about all these kind of uh twins and and fertility but getting to do a show like that it teaches you a lot more so that's very long rambly thing no, <laughs> so interesting no, it's really interesting I mean yeah learn learn a, a ton every day is a school day I mean it was really I've got a quiz pop quiz for you right now <laughs> no I haven't <laughs> could you imagine if I was like okay guys <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we had, I mean, the, there's the, obviously the research that, you know, everybody was bringing into the writer's room every day. I mean, look, lots of things, I think, and particularly about to do with individual stories, they're sort of shocking, but also not. You sort of feel that, you know, you understand that it's it's that it's still um, very dangerous to give birth in lots of places, uh, in most places, and it's very expensive and it's sort of, and the, uh, women's health is underfunded and under-researched it's you know all of that I think the specific stories themselves that attach to that would always be shocking but also feel depressingly like yeah we're not not surprised by that mm-hmm. um yeah we had some amazing experts Spe- speaking to the longevity uh expert was the guy who thinks that death is a it's something we should treat as a preventable disease was fascinating really <laughs> yeah oh wow yeah oh my god did I, what was that conversation it's like sat down over breakfast but he was just kind of specifically not eating anything bad for himself like <laughs> I'm so intrigued I'm thinking about that guy that billionaire who's who's trying to prevent his death and he has like a very specific regimen plan mm-hmm. it's like oh you want to be alive you don't want to live <laughs> <laughs> I think this this guy was it was to do it's like this is the very non-scientific read of it, but fiddling with your DNA. Yeah. Yeah. Was Didn't it the CRISPR-Cas gene editing? Gene editing. Yeah. CRISPR-Cas9. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you so thank much. You. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. And now it is time for our... Hot Yes, 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 yes. Uh, it's time to talk about The Mandalorian Season 3 finale, Episode 8, called The Return. Um, yeah, this episode. You know what? Let's start on a positive note. Let's talk about the things we liked about this episode. And I'm going to go first. Um, the action was really, really cool. Uh, lots of jetpacks, uh, the return of some knee blasters. I always like some, some knee blaster action in The Mandalorian. That was cool. Um, Bo-Katan with the dark saber in the air with a whole squad of Mandalorians. That was very, very cool. The gauntlet that Mando has to do, the, the shields, going through the shields and, and taking on the whole uh, to the crap ton of enemies. I thought that was really, really cool and really well done as well. Uh, were there any other action beats that stood out to you guys? Hannah, I'm going to start with you. Um, I, yeah, I, I thought it was interesting. Um, I liked it when they came down into the, um, into the forge and we see them fighting in the air. I think, I mean, it's what Clarissa would call zoomies. 
Um, <laughs> and I quite like the way it was, it was good zoomies. It was good zoom zoom action. Um, I liked the way I actually was really scared for Grogu. I thought, are they actually going to kill Grogu? Um, and no. no, I mean, I honest, that's what I liked about it. It was like, there was an actual threat there. Like it was quite scary when they destroyed um, what's it called? L. What's it called? L. One. What? I. G. Eleven. I. G. Eleven. I. G. Twelve. I. G. Twelve. Sorry. I. G. Twelve. Yeah. He's reverted back to I. G. Eleven now. Okay. I. G. Twelve. Yeah. I thought that was scary. I thought. Um. Yeah. The Pacharian. Is it Pacharian Guard? I think that was quite interesting. And honestly, it was like I could really feel every hit <laughs> of um what Din was going through and Bo-Katan and all that. So yeah, I thought it was. I did wonder, after the episode where they said half jet fuels can't make the journey, I was like, I'm really impressed that the guy's uh, jet fuel lasted all the way up to the Imperial into outer space. (laughs) (laughs) I liked when the armourer was knocking people out of midair with her hammer. (laughs) (laughs) I, I cried so much when it was right at the end where... Grogu was holding back the fire, and but also when there was a scene where it's like in that fight where Grogu like knocked um, Moff Gideon's armor off, and then you could see Moff Gideon go to shoot him, and then Daddy Din just like knee slid in there and shot him, and it was so like I love it when a family works together, and I got so emotional <laughs> seeing mommy and daddy and baby like all tea worked it like that is Star Wars to me is these three people are not related and did not know each other until not that long ago. And they've become this like totally bonded family unit fighting. They're like little, the little people fighting against the big bad. And I just loved it so much. Oh, I think one of the things I really enjoyed about, I think a lot of people like this whole season is how much Din has needed rescuing as much as he saved people. Because I think that's, because, you know, we talk about, like, Mary Sue characters when it comes to female, like, you know, oh, they don't need to save, like, Ray. she doesn't need saving, she's actually going to, she's she's got no experience. And I think, like, someone like Din, I think it's important that we actually see some of these heroes actually can fuck up, and they do need help. And that's the point, it's like this kind of, the perfect pedestaling heroics where they can't, they can't you know, need help. And when, especially for a character that's so often been a lone wolf. I think what I really like about this series as much as it establishes that family and support and asking for help is not a weakness. Actually, that's a strength being, and I think that's what's, I think the biggest takeaway from this series in that, uh, in that it really, again, the Mandalore, right? It says the biggest, the only time that we failed is when we basically fighting each other. When Mandalorians start strong, that's when they're at their strongest. And I think that's, I think that's been the, great overarching theme of this season yeah i don't disagree with a lot of that i just found this episode to be slightly underwhelming from the standpoint that it felt so neat and tidy and straightforward in a way that i don't think it needed to be i think it breezed by a couple of plot points which the show itself and other previous Star Wars things had made a big deal out of. For, for instance, the Darksaber. So much importance, especially from season two of 
the Mandalorian was given to that weapon. And if you go back further to Clone Wars Rebels, so much importance was given to the Darksaber. When Bo-Katan loses it in the fight with Moff Gideon, we don't even get a scene about how she's feeling about the fact that the Darksaber is no more. Why not just give us a scene, a line? Mandalorians are stronger together is literally that's, what she that's says. That's not about the Darksaber. Because Come it on. doesn't matter. That's the entire point but of it, the story is that yeah. it doesn't, like... That's such a Ryan Johnson was, thing. <laughs> it, yeah, it was like the weapon, they had attached so much importance to it, but it it made no difference. It wasn't, it was just an object. It's a MacGuffin. Like, <laughs> yeah, it was just an object. See, the thing is, and I they, don't disagree with that's why Mandalore at least one of the reasons Mandalore fell is that they like attach too much yeah, exactly. significance to objects. And, and she and would this. come to the realization that it was like, no, nothing is more important than unity. And like this when, is when do we see that? When like, she what, says Mandalorians I... are stronger together! No, that's <laughs> that but that that to me was not a that that was not related to the dark saber. That, that's is. really to the consent. It's, it I is don't think literally. It is. She's saying it doesn't matter that it broke because Mandalorians. She's not are, saying. Yes, she is. It, she's saying it's literally what that actually tools are not as important as people. That's the point, and that's been the whole storyline because that's been the, why the children of the watch and like Bo-Katan's Mandalorian. I, I don't know what she calls them. Um, the night owls or whatever her group like are able to come together because they understand that like the material divisions yes. that meant that the children of watch went into hiding like they still it's can like, keep um, their helmets the armorer yeah exactly yeah it does the armorer again. learned a lesson too because yeah, she was exactly. like you know what it doesn't matter as much let me welcome in bo like all of these mandalorians have learned that the shit that they thought broke their people apart it wasn't that it was them which yeah. i think is really yeah. beautiful yeah <laughs> I also thought Moff Gideon's death in Birth of Commons was very underwhelming and unsatisfying. I'm not even sure if he's fully dead, to be honest, but and saying that Well he's not we he haven't seen a body, so we can't if you don't see a body. I <laughs> mean never. he was set on fire. <laughs> I don't know, that Beskar <laughs> armor could have been quite strong. Yeah. I guess. I mean I don't know. It worked for Anakin, but I don't know how many <laughs> times they can get away with it. <laughs> I also, you know, we talked last week about the whole IG-11 going into IG-12 and having that be a really cool payoff for Grogu, and I do still agree with that, but now bringing back IG-11 goes back to what I was saying in that initial episode, let a good death be a good death and just let it lie. There's no reason... (laughs) The character, for me, was not so good that you just undo that and bring him back and have him be Marshall. Well, is it not quite funny why because you know who they who obviously who he's replacing as Marshall. Do you not think that's quite funny? <laughs> I was giggling. Oh, yeah. Honestly I was I was I was I I just think that's just part and parcel for Star Wars. Um I think it's part and parcel for Star Wars because they they bring anyone back. <laughs> Even like Han Solo in like the as a Force Ghost, you know what I mean? Like whatever it was, yeah. it's like Star Wars just will do it. That I and I don't necessarily disagree with you actually on that final bit for that thingy. I think okay, all right, but now I've just accepted that's just like Star Wars are like refuse to let sleeping dogs lie. 
it's like, yeah. It also feels a little bit weird. And I know that it was sort of set up in the early episodes, but the whole thing you mentioned it about Mandalorian stronger together, the whole thing about, okay, let's retake our home planet. Let's retake Mandalore. You do that. And then it ends with Din and Grogu on Navarro. That feels a little at odds with each Why? other. Why? But the, it literally <laughs> said, you need to take your it. apprentice out on adventures, right? So it's like saying, okay, we're going to start off here and you've got to do that thing. So he's just basically going back there so it's an easy access to the rest of space. Mandalore needs to be rebuilt. He can't rebuild it. So it's okay. They don't have to be like all together all the time. Like, it's Jara's not, not going to help. If you see him, he's very clumsy. Like, he's doing what he can for Mandalore. <laughs> you see when he dropped that? That was one of my favorite bits of the episode where he was fighting um, that Beskar, Dark Trooper. And he falls off the side and he goes to grab the gun and it just goes off the side and he's like, fuck. Also, in that, that piece you sent through, was it Collider about, like, the problem? Then he said something in the piece about, um, oh, we went into the New Republic being corrupt and then suddenly he joins the New Republic site. But he doesn't. He does it unofficially. He says, I'll help out here and there when the basically bureaucracy of New Republic means that they won't send people out. Right. So that that's for me. It's like he's saying, "I'll be an outlaw, like an, an a freelancer, unregistered like helper on these places to earn some money, do these things." So it doesn't stop saying the New Republic is perfect because obviously all governments are in some way corrupt, bureaucracy, red tape, and all these type of things, and it causes can some things more cause more harm than good. So I disagree with that bit as well to suggest that he's just suddenly becoming a super cop. <laughs> but there you go. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I think overall this season had its moments, but up and down for me, up and down. And when the finale ended, I don't think it was a bad episode, but I need to stretch the imagination, but I was a bit underwhelmed. Um, and yeah, I hope that season four, which we know is definitely coming, will refocus on Din and Grogu a little bit more and have them not be for because uh, for a lot of the season they were just <laughs> there and i didn't mind that to a degree because the bo-katan is such a strong character um but now that they are going on sort of almost back to basics having their own adventures seemingly i hope that their desires and wants and their own stories are at the forefront in a way that they weren't necessarily this season i like this better than season two i think season one's my favorite because i think it's so I just really like the sort of episodic Western cowboy thing. <laughs> but season two was so like every episode was like, remember, th- remember this person? Remember Cab Bay? Remember Tim the Oliphant? Remember? <laughs> um, and I liked that this, they actually, we had new characters and new storylines and I loved the Eli Kane stuff. Um, I hope she comes back. She's fun. Um, Cad Bane wasn't Mandalorian, that was Boba Fett. It's all the same. <laughs> but you know, it was so good. You did not just lump Boba Fett in with Mandalorian. But Boba then it was Fett like, is no, a few but classes was, down okay, from the Mandalorian. Season two was like, Ahsoka, Boba, like it was just introducing people constantly and I was getting quite tired by the end. And I think I liked that this season was actually slowing down to have the characters interact with each other and develop emotions and and conflict and resolving that conflict and um i liked lizzo being in it as well no she was fun i really enjoyed that episode because it was like a little crime spree crime detective thing um 
I really enjoyed this season. I like the fact that it got off Tatooine. I mean, uh, you know, I love yes. Tatooine, but I really like that we got more galaxy exploration. For me, that's fun. Um, I have zero expectations for next season. I'm just, I just think nowadays I'm just like, yeah, let's see what happens. And I feel like if you create expectations, you're just going to be disappointed when it doesn't end up delivering what you want. So for me, I'm just like, just let it give it to me. Let it wash over over me, baby. As long as Grogu jumps a bit more, because I really like him jumping. <laughs> that, that was a fun sequence. I did enjoy that. Uh, and, on, and on that note, uh, I did enjoy this too. Uh, and it is over. Episode 107 Faithback Podcast is done. Thank you for tuning in and happy viewing by whatever medium is safest for you. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It makes a difference. And tweet us any questions or hot takes at Faith to Black Pod on Twitter. Even if you once had a blue tick and you now no longer and you now no longer have a blue tick, we still love you. It's okay. Please tweet at us. And I am at Among Woman on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I have deactivated my social media, so Wow. Boss move. There you go. Boss move. <laughs> do not look at me. Do not speak, do not speak to, to me. me. Uh, yeah. You can <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you can like buy my website if you're that desperate to get in touch with me. Flintonfilm.com. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you can <laughs> add the Fade to Black pod if you have questions that you want Anna to answer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Interesting questions. Uh, I'm at Clarice Lou on Twitter and I'm at Clarice Lockery on Instagram. And I'm still on there, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> For the moment. Uh, farewell, film friends and TV friends. It's time to fade to black. 